What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And if you didn't know, because every week there's a new listener, right? Every day there's someone discovering Living Corporate. So I'm going to just let everybody know. And then for those who've been rocking with us for a while, I'm going to remind y'all too. Living Corporate is a digital media network, and we exist to center and amplify black and brown people at work. That's what we do, okay? We are the voice of the people. We're not really here to promote corporations or protect them or be some type of like... I don't know, corporate reputational laundering service. Like, that's not what we do, right? When we have brands on to talk about black and brown people at work, uh, when we have executives, activists, elected officials, public servants, influencers, artists, et cetera, when we have any of these types of people on, we're going to be centering and amplifying black and brown experiences. And if that brand happens to do that work and really be authentic in that space, then we will speak to them. And you can best believe that when they come on the stage, on this platform, we're not pulling any punches. We're having real conversations. You know what I'm saying? Like that is what Living Corporate is all about. I'm so excited about where Living Corporate is. I'm excited about this episode. You're about to hear this conversation you're about to hear. Um, And, you know, I just want you to know that I love you. I appreciate you. Make sure that you follow Living Corporate everywhere we exist. You know what I'm saying? Just type in, just Google Living Corporate. I ain't about to rattle off all the social media handles. You know what I mean? Like if you just go on Google or whatever search engine you use, because that's not an ad either. Um, (laughs) Whatever you use, uh, Ask Jeeves, Bing, Yahoo, I don't know, what Microsoft Edge, whatever you're using, just type in Living Corporate and we're going to pop up, right? Now look, what you're listening to is Real Talk Tuesdays. You're listening to um, one show that's part of a larger network right and so what you're gonna if you check us out you look at our website living-corporateplease-com you'll see that we actually have a network of shows right um, all focused on centering and amplifying black and brown folks at work with different lenses right so shout out to the entire team um, as our shows continue to come you will hear about it but make sure you plug in so you can just stay in tune that way you don't have to try to catch up you can just be caught up as you're catching on you know what I'm saying now um with that being said, I'm excited about this conversation you're about to hear. I want you to pay attention and make sure that you click the links in the show notes to learn more about what we're doing and where we're going. I'll see you soon. Sandra, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. You know what? It's the end of the summer and we're all sort of like, why? <laughs> but we're here. Listen, okay. this summer, this summer has been so hot. So, so hot. Um, I don't know what's going on uh, in Houston, but it's hot everywhere. So, you know, but you got to be thankful. I mean, it's, I mean, it's you know, you, you, we on this side of ground. So you count your blessings yes. where you can. Now, look, um, can you briefly share with our listeners your journey into the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and what inspired you to like just embark in this work? Because it's not easy work. It's not easy work, Zach, and I have to tell you, my story is, uh, starts on a negative side, uh, unfortunately. Um, I was overlooked for a promotion that really should have been mine. And in, that, in the midst of that uh, conversation and negotiations, Uh, The CEO spent a lot of time investigating the situation. What was it about? Why was it that way? 
And he ended up offering me three opportunities. And of those opportunities, one was directing diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I said to him, you know what? He had asked me this years before if I would do it. And I said, no. Uh, this time I said, you know, what? I'm taking this and I'm taking it because what happened to me should not happen to anybody else. And I am convinced that there's a lot that has to be done in order to help people in their mindset and to change the direction of the organization. And by the way, I thought the organization was fair and equitable, but when it occurred in my face, as it did, I said, no, something's not right. And so that's the start of my journey. Now, interesting enough, that CEO is the CEO that I work for today. Interesting. So, you know, so let's, I want to, I want to ask a, a couple follow, at least one follow up there. So when you had this conversation about like, this was not equitable, this was not fair. I mean, you had this dialogue with this person who is now your CEO. Um, how re receptive was he of that discussion? Like, and I asked that because, and then also, I, and I, and, I, and my part B is, and how did you share that feedback? Because I'll tell you, in my career and my experiences, so often uh, there's this level of just immediate defensiveness and resistance to any sort of accountability at all. So, like, how did that happen? And real, like, um, how did that? Just what was that exchange like? So what I need to um, build on here is that I had a relationship with him. So it wasn't brand new. It wasn't like I was this stranger walking in, in his office or engaging him. Oh, he engaged me all the time. Um, when he joined the organization I was with, I said to him, you need to have people from the mailroom to the boardroom that you can call on because everybody is not going to um, get, tell you the truth. What he relied on with me in our relationship, I, I would tell him the truth and it would be sometimes raw. And he respected that because I just wasn't going to beat around the bush with him. Uh, he was, it was really his first foray into being a CEO. And so there was a trust level that, and a relationship that was there. So when he set, spent time with me on this and he was not told that this was taking place. So that was another piece that was really surprising to him. Uh, and so there was all of that happening. So the most important thing I would say to people is having relationships in uh, the organization is really, really important. You know, I, I have to say also, like there is this, like, like Sandra, based on what you're saying, there is like this meta narrative though that you're, you're validating of black women constantly being like the salve while also being harmed, like constantly have, okay, Hey, this happened to me. And now I'm going to be part of the, I'm going to be a part of the solution while also being like on the receiving end of harm. Like, how do you, I'm not going to ask, is it exhausting? That's an obvious question. I, like it's like, that's a silly question. What I am curious about is, is like, how do you handle the, the fatigue of that and like what would and what guidance or advice would you give to like younger or newer black women in their careers constantly having to like fix systems that they aren't really accountable for so the the one piece that is, that i talk about is self-care uh you're not superwoman and you are not god and so just know 
that they will be good days and they will absolutely be bad days. You will not always have friends. Uh, you will have frenemies. You'll have people who are trying to figure you out. Um, I actually approach my work like Columbo. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it can drive people crazy because <laughs> I don't come full right away. I need to understand who you are and, and whose you are and why you're here. Uh, and what, what, what is your plan? Um, and I deal with leaders that way. Like I need to understand folks before we get down to the business. Uh, it does become exhausting and I do take time off and I will tell people that you must take time off. You have to um, exhale. You really do have to exhale because then you're, you know, you got to get your filters clean too, that you're reading things properly because the truth is everything that comes to you is not discrimination. Uh, people fake this out. And if you want to talk about something that pisses me off, it's when you fake it that somebody discriminated against you because there's too many other true stories and then you come and try to build one up and, and it's not true. So I don't like to waste time there. I, let's deal with the real stuff. Absolutely. You talked about kind of like your, your foray into this work. Um, I appreciate your candor. You know, what drew you to Nielsen specifically? And then also what's keeping you there now? So previous to Nielsen, I'd been at my uh, former job for 14 years. That was um, a holding company. Coming to Nielsen was one company and also the CEO. I trust him. And I would not have sort of jumped at this point, but because of him. I, I do trust him. He has over the years grown and matured a lot more regarding DEI. And he knows that this is a baseline, just a mere baseline for Nielsen. Nielsen is about representation and, and the whole audience. So this is, it, it's crucial. And I, I really, pre the other thing is my mother worked for Nielsen. Okay. <laughs> it was my mother's last job. So I said, this is going to be my last job. <laughs> but the difference is she was in the call center and I, I'm in the C-suite. So I think it's a nice story. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so, so you know, it's, it's interesting. You talk about like your journey and if that might be the pivotal moment. I am curious, though, if there are any other moments in your in your experience that maybe shifted your shifted your perspective or really added to your 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 lexicon, your your strategy, your skill set as it pertains to like just this space, this work of, of diversity, equity, inclusion. Like, or was there something that was like, wow, that's really an unlock for me, or wow, that okay, I really need to look at this differently. I really thought I had this figured out, but this is challenging me to 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 uh, to look at this in a different different way. Yeah. Well, there are two things. Uh, one was uh, understanding other groups, other cultures that what they're going through versus what me as a black person is going through. And I will say that, you know, as, as black people, we stay in our lane of a thought process of we're the worst. It's the worst for us. There are people and cultures that are getting beat up too. And we have to understand that and we have to be more thoughtful about it. Um, then there's the gender piece that when I've had some, incidents where women have come to me uh, who are white who have talked about their story and it was socio socioeconomic differences 
And so that status uh, in the white culture is it's serious. And so uh, you really do have to think about how people experience life. And so what I have pivoted to is, I call it high touch. You really do have to hear people, see people, and understand people for the life journey they're taking. You know, there's so, there's so much to be said there, right? As it pertains to, I, like, to your point, like, I'll say, you know, like, let's say, like, when white folks say, if I talk to, like, let's say I talk to white folks and say, you know, I grew up poor, too, and it's like, I grew up from the bottom. It's like, you were from the bottom, but it wasn't the black bottom, though. It wasn't the same, right? But, like, here's the thing, like, something doesn't have to be the same for it to have merit and value, and certainly doesn't have to be the same for you to pause, empathize, and reflect and appreciate that unique experience. And then also to your point, I receive and agree that like there are other experiences in the world that are complex, that are challenged, that are oppressed, um, and that are are dangerous and life threatening. And it's an it's imperative, you know, that everyone recognize the relative access and privilege that they have right cuz every everybody has it yes and listen for blacks speaking generationally now mm. the access that they have is nothing like i had mm-hmm. uh it's a, it's a wider berth of oh my goodness and then so for me in my generation i'm asking the question you need to step in and step up what i am getting is a different kind of approach which is not bad but it's also Think about your historical piece. You've got to keep that history there uh, because there's still layers of people who are there and they are using it. And we have now come full circle, finding ourselves in a place that is really, really not good for us. You know, to that end, um, talking to my grandfather, my grandfather is 83. And um, and we were talking about, actually, I was talking about living corporate. And he said, he said, he said, that's your job. And I said, yeah, that's my job. I built this. He was like, he was like, he was like, he said, be careful uh, talking about that stuff. He said, and he said, he said, nah, he's like, things are bad. He's like, now look, he's like, things are rough. He's like, I'm going to tell you though. He's like, back when I was your age, he's like, I didn't have no job. I didn't have no jobs doing the stuff you're doing. That, especially at the time, Sandra, I was still, I think I was consulting still. So I was at, I think I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers at the time. So he was just impressed at the idea of like, wow, like you able to have a job where you can work from home or where you can like travel all around and like make all, like, he's like, he's like, I just, he's like, he's like, I'm telling you, like, it was just, com- it's completely different. Right. And so I have to take, I have to slow down also and just listen you know, to that end, I, I'm curious, like to your point about generational like, um, intersectionality on, or in the generational lens. As you look at like millennials, I'm not going to say Gen Z years right now because they just kind of coming out of college and they really knew. But like as you look at like millennial leaders and even like younger Gen X leaders, what are things that you that you say, look, this is different. And it's pushing me in a good way versus, hey, I, I just I genuinely disagree with this. Like, are there are there things that you can say, you know what, this is this makes me uncomfortable, but I can tell this where we need to go versus like, hey, I don't think that this is right. Right. So, you know, um, your discomfort and my discomfort are two different things. OK, because 
I have matured to know that, you know what, sometimes you have to, I told you Columbo, right? So sometimes you have to sit in the room and check it out and then go back to it. I find that my millennials at times want to jump right in it. No, 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 hold up. Because you have to figure out why they said what they said or why they did what they did, because there's something behind it. Uh, it's not just done. There's something behind it. And so I want people to be more patient and figure things out and have conversation. The other thing I told you about relationships, this is serious because we, and I, I have young people say, I don't feel like teaching them. <laughs> well, let me be clear. If you don't, who will? Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking for patience on this. I really am with my millennials. Be patient. If they say, uh, have they have a microaggression moment with you, stop for a second and say, is this worth it? Is this the moment? Now, I've actually told my son that. Like, if, if, if it's worth it, go for it. But if it's not, now he had a few build up. And when he got to the third, I said, no, no thirds. We're not doing thirds. You need to go in on that. You need to go in on it. I said, and take it to HR. I said, because at this point, I'm not, I don't have patience myself hearing it. So you have to measure though, when, uh, and I spoke to a gentleman the other day who is more my contemporary, but he was in a situation where he's among mostly white women and he's a black man. And I said, I know what you have to measure. And I said, I think you've done it fine for now, but I said, you think you let her go too far. Uh, he was speaking about someone who was a bully. And I said, no, mm -mm, got to stop that in its tracks. And you can stop it in concert with HR and say your piece so that it is witnessed. And that's another thing. Um, our people don't use HR enough. And even if HR is not uh, 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 performing at a high level of intelligence, diversity intelligence, you have to teach them too. Because I said to him, I said, so you need to explain to them, you are a black male among uh, mostly white females. I said, stop and stop when you say it. And because they're going to look at you like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, they, I did that. And they said, you're, you're talking about discrimination. He said, no, I'm actually not talking about discrimination. I'm talking about a bully who happens to be a white female and being a white female has her privilege. And me as a black manager, male manager, I have a position that I have to hold because otherwise I'm going to be the one. And I said, you have to actually point that out to them because some of them don't know they, they, it doesn't occur. To it doesn't them. even, it doesn't even register, you know, to that, to that, to that point, Sandra, like I, I'm going to tell you like, so I'm a millennial 33 Virgo season. Also, by the way, it's, it's here y'all like, okay, it's we here, we outside. Um, so, but <laughs> But here, so here's the thing, right, is to your point, like I came up in human resources, um, uh, change management, org design. So I was what you're describing. I was that. And you're absolutely right that there has to be really almost like some courses, I would even think, like some some professional development on how to effectively use HR. I do believe that like historically marginalized people, particularly black folks, right, not to paint with a super broad brush. We're either taught to like overly depend on HR or treat HR like they're the ops. And it's like, look, they're a tool, like they sit in a function 
and irrespective of how they behave, your job is to manage them by how you engage and document. Right. And so I've been in situations where I was the only person or I'd be leading a team of all white women and a bunch of things would just start happening. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to document this conversation. I'm going to record this conversation. And then I'm going to sit down with HR and say, it's so, so eerie that you said that. Cause I remember I had a kind of situation where I said, Hey, I'm the only black, I'm the first, I'm not, I'm the only man and I'm the only black man. And I am younger than all these people. And I'm six two, two eighty five. So, <laughs> and they're saying things like, wow, I, I didn't know that you knew that word or your vocabulary is very interesting or I don't know if you're always thinking things through. You don't seem like a critical thinker to me or, or then on the, the next day, you, this seems a little too strategic or like, so it's like all this stuff. Right. And so, and so then it's, and, and to your point, they, it's, it's this um, hammer nail. They're look, they're waiting for you to say, I was discriminated against. Like, I'm not even saying I'm being discriminated against. I'm telling you that there's a culture and pattern here of behavior that is compounded by my race, compounded by my, by my, by my identity. And so you're absolutely right. Like there's this work that has to happen and that is done um, to really manage upward, manage HR and educate them. And if you put you put yourself in a position, going back to the other thing you said about, I don't, we don't want to teach people. If you're not going to take on some level of leadership and education for your environment, then you're going to then be, you're going to then be subject to your environment. Like the education is power. Now, like I really do appreciate that idea of uh, courses regarding how to manage up and o- around HR because HR is for the company. It's protecting the company. And I tell I tell this to everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. HR does represent the company. And so you need to think long and hard before you start engaging them when it becomes a legal thing. You need your own legal outside legal counsel. That's what you need. So um, you go, you present the issue. And I that same situation you just talked about, I had that at another company. He was also 6'2". He was... He said, I go to lunch with them. I listen to the shower planning and the, you know, the wedding planning. And after a while, he got tired of it. And so he went to HR to have that kind of conversation. What happened when he went to HR was that they, they meaning the manager, decided uh, he had a, uh, a problem in retaining information and he wasn't doing his job well. All of that came out of him saying, you know what, I don't want to be put in a position where I'm sort of the bad person because I don't want to go to those lunches or to the outside activities. I literally had to go with him to HR to explain to them, I want you to look at this completely and fully for what it is. Right. I mean, so that's so, Sandra, I just, I'm so, I'm so mind blown in this moment because to your point in my experience, this, and this was only like three years ago, all these issues about my competence were only raised after I made a note of, Hey, I don't really like some of these experiences I'm having with these people, like the resistance to my leadership. Right. Like, and we've had, like, we have the largest case study of 
resistance to um to black leadership and frankly black and brown leadership by the majority and Barack Obama. And this is not a political podcast or something like that. I'm not even saying this is not even about being pro Obama. It's just the the level of vitriol that was aimed towards him was so like beyond the pale rel- relative to other Pope presidents. It was just like, what is going on? And so like, I remember I said, Hey, look, there's just some things that are being said about me and said to me, or just kind of like the way that people are showing up, that it's bringing me pause. All of a sudden it was, Hey, actually we, while you submitted this investigation, we did an investigation on you. And here's all the things we found out about. She's like, what is that about? And that is, that is absolutely how that, that story ends. Because because you have an intellect sometimes that is beyond what their expectations were, and they're trying to figure you out. And they can't. And that becomes, you know, a resistance thing. Uh, and the victorial that co- goes with it is like, what? You woke up this morning and you, you, you were angry at me for what? I used a big word you didn't understand? <laughs> so, it was so bizarre and if it wasn't frankly for people like you Sandra in my in my life at that time to help me realize that hey no Zach you're not you're not out of line here you're this what you're experiencing is ridiculous then I who's to say where I might have I might have lost myself so look we, we went off on a phenomenal tangent I, I know we but, did I know we but, did. But, <laughs> So, so, so I think all of this really goes back, uh, flows well into my next question. So look, DI positions, they are notoriously understaffed and underfunded. Um, in light of this, what advice would you give to both executive leaders and DEI practitioners? So as a practitioner going into an organization, I tell people this all the time, you know, when we had that flood of interviews and wanting to hire DEI leaders and CDOs and blah, blah, blah. Well, what, why do they want you? Do, do they know why they want you? Because this is the beginning of uh, really ruining the, the uh, DEI position itself. Because if you go in not knowing, you're not actually going to be successful anyway. You need to know what kind of support you have. You need to know what the mindset of the leadership is about. You need to understand uh, from the ground up what their business is about, what are the resources they're going to actually provide. That means uh, people and it means uh, the money, the finances for for the uh, strategy that you want to build or the programs that you want to you know um, uh, provide for the organization. But you also want to know in the organization, will you have ambassadors? Will there be people who will actually help you be successful? And does the leadership understand that it's not just you? Because if you go in and they say, well, no, uh, she or he, he have it. They're the CDO. Uh-uh, no, no, no. Uh-uh. I don't wake up every day with it just on my back. Uh, the success of what I do in terms of a strategy is always from my perspective to help the bottom line. It has always been that because that's the language that they best are suited for. What is it going to do to and create an environment where people are really productive? And see, that particular piece is hard to measure. Uh, we also have to do uh, talk about data and what the data means in driving a strategy that actually is going to be effective and make change happen. 
you know what? Like that's a phenomenal. First of all, thank you for your and to your first. The first place I want to say is I recall I've been at a few different uh, consulting firms, but so that was at a, a, another shop, and I remember I was rolling out this program called Lit. Now this is before Lit as a slang was very tired. Now this was you know some years ago when it was very fresh, uh, Sandra. So I was cool. Trust me. So Lit stood for leaning in together. And it was all about like, okay, we're going to create um, these real talk sessions. This is actually what inspired Living Corporate. We're gonna sp- we're gonna create these real talk sessions where we actually bring in white executives to talk to historically marginalized younger uh, new professionals in the organization, and it's gonna then create points of connection. We're then gonna have like coaching sessions, and it's gonna create like actual career pathing and some level of engagement and potential areas of sponsorship. Um, upward sponsorship. And so I remember when I was presenting this to my, um, to my department, to my group and one of the partners, one of the senior partners who had been there for a long time, I mean, a long time, probably like 25 years. Um, she said, well, where is insert CDO? She's like, is this her program or is this your program? And why are you doing this? If she, we already have a CDO, like, what is this? And I said, so I'm working with the CDO. She, she is the sponsor of this program and we're working together. But I said, but this work of talent enablement and engagement and sponsorship and mentorship, this is a, this is a collective endeavor. This is not a single person point of failure that if it doesn't come from this person, it's not a thing. It needs to be blessed by them and they're going to empower and drive, but it's not right for you to just, and, and it's, and it also highlights like a gap in your, and I didn't, this part I didn't say, of course, but it said, but it, but I was thinking about it just, it highlights a gap in your thinking and approach <laughs> that you say, well, anything that is diversity, it, if I don't have to touch that, all of that is on this person over in the corner somewhere. That's right. Mm-hmm. No, you have to have all hands in. It has to be because otherwise people won't pay attention to it because it's not a part of their remit. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we make ours accountable. You got to be accountable, and that's the other piece. When we were talking before, uh, I didn't. I left that out. Accountability is crucial. It's crucial to anybody. If your leader says to you, uh, "This is a part of what we do on a daily basis," you are likely to pay attention to it. It's uh, a part of your your uh, review. What did you do in order to increase diversity, equity, inclusion in the organization? How did you participate? Those are questions that we ask. You know, I, I to that point, you talked about data. Like, you know, Nielsen um, provides his clients with valuable insights into consumer behavior and market information by collecting data that measures what consumers watch and what they buy. Right. So that that is that is Nielsen. Right. What with with this in mind, how do you leverage data to shape DEI strategy at Nielsen? So coming into um, Nielsen, I was not data-driven. I really wasn't. I did just the basics from the former job. Nielsen really put this at the top of the list, and rightfully so. Um, so certainly started out on the representation side, and what does that look like, and where are we missing, where are the gaps? We need, really need to understand where we are in order to de- decide where we're going to go. 
and we based our our uh, representation on the 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 uh, census, <clears throat> which is another thing I hadn't paid attention like that, and I found it to be quite interesting because you learn so much and you never stop learning. You never stop learning, um, and so we we identified the there are about four areas that we needed to really pay uh, attention to. Got it. Okay. But from there, there's also creating activities and programs, et cetera, data from that. How, how involved are our people in these activities? Uh, how often are, do they take place? What is the return is what it is on these activities. So we started with the uh, 11 BRGs. We're now at 14 BRGs, business resource groups. And what some things you can't measure is that people say, I feel freer now. They feel freer because we have put it in front of them. We have told our people what the numbers are. We're, we're transparent with that. And that creates that feeling that, you know what, these people are serious about this. And so uh, you can go forward by just being uh, open with the numbers, telling them where we want to go. Uh, if we miss, we miss, and they know that. What causes the miss? Uh, and by the way, I tell people uh, of these different uh, communities, you have to help here. So when we're recruiting, please don't say we can't find people. You need to give us references, it's referrals rather, and we we collectively need to do something about it. Uh, so those things are, and of course, retention. Um, we have very good numbers from the programs that we have launched on retaining those people in the organization. They feel good about what we do. So first of all, like, you know, I'm a bit of a nerd. So Sandra, I'm going to be honest with you. I am my, I really got into, I started, like told you, I cut my teeth really like as an HR manager, then got into um, like org design and training, then got into full change management org transformation, and then started getting the DEI. And the thing about it is what I really started getting excited about, and I've been excited about this for a few for some years now is it's the pulling of the HRIS data and analysis. So using Python and R to then like organize and cleanse data, then using like a power BI or a tableau to then like in, to then create dashboards, like a different intersectional lenses. Right. So like you say, okay, to your point about representation, it's not just male, female, it's like how many white gen X women are in the engineering department who also are in the Southwest region and then comparing them to black Gen X women in the engineering department in the Northeast region, and then looking at time to hire, time at level, retention, benefits, usage, performance. It's that level of like granularity, like in, in, in our data analytics that really helped to inform, uh, to your point, like what are we actually doing? And then, and then the, the part though, that gets me really excited is you take all of that quantitative HRS data and then you layer on top of that sentiment data, right? So if I can sit back and say, okay, baby boomer black men in the IT department are all those things I said, and they also feel like this. And then you take all that data and then you leverage it against your um the the your 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 engagement strategy. So to your point with your BRGs, 
you have all this data now. So then when you sit back and you measure and you engage them and you get, you see how they feel, especially if you time that survey or you time that point of, I'm going to say time, uh, that time of measurement, that point of measurement against when an event happened. And then you can start comparing and contrasting. Right. And so I love the fact that you said, like you started off, like you, when you came in, you weren't data, but like the, but like the fact that you've adapted and you're growing in that I'm excited about the future of this work. I think that, especially to your point about <laughs> this position being ruined. I really think that the wheat and the chaff are going to separate by how effective folks are able to stand behind, like and an, analyze, engage, analyze and strategize against their data because the folks that aren't able to do that, Sandra, they're going to get cut because you can't, if I can't show tangible, provable, documentable, like documented point of improve, then they're going to be like, well, what are we doing? This is a, this is a, this is a, um, this is a waste of money, right? Even if it isn't because you don't have any evidence, you know what I mean? And, and the, the other piece that, uh, from my former job and still now, I always keep the emails that come that talk about how they feel about the organization, because when you have that, and we do have, you know, we have pulse surveys for sure. Uh, and what you were saying about, uh, being that granular, I do think it really is important because it's a part of the story. And here we have a lot of people who've been here 10, 15, and 20 years. And there is definitely a different mindset from those who've come in in the last five years. So you need to be able, when you do this pulse surveys, be able to pull that out and say, so, okay, legacy of thinking, blah, 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 as opposed to new people who have a sort of different and sometimes fresh perspective that we need to be paying attention to, then we need to put the two together in a room. Let's talk about this. Um, these things uh, at my, for my generation is really interesting because I, I am the detective. I am going underneath. I got to figure this stuff out. Why? Uh, and when you don't give people that opportunity to see the story, then they start to wonder, as you say, so why are we spending money on this? Right. And, and, and when you, and, and I think to, to your point about like needing to pull those things out, because if you don't apply an intersectional lens and you're not as granular as possible in your analysis, it leaves room for assumptions and and right. And so then what happens is, so what happens? So if I sit back and I, let's say you make a dash, you, let's say you, you run your analysis, but it's not intersectional or it's not really granular. Well, then if people make assumptions and Sandra, those assumptions are wrong. Well, well, damn, you was better off not doing the analysis at all because you, now you're walking away with a bunch of wrong assumptions that, that are going to create harm. Right. So, you know, look, all that being said, you know, I, I think as we talk about data, the future of this work, you know, and technology, you know, we're talking, AI is er everybody using AI now, right? AI is everywhere. I'm on LinkedIn talking about use AI to help you write a post now. And there's AI in everything that we're doing. Living corporate uses AI. AI is here. I don't believe it's going anywhere. What questions or concerns do you have regarding the use of a artificial intelligence and, and, and AI tools in um, in the work of DEI. Okay, so uh, AI is, is like the first time it came, it came to me in terms of knowledge. I said, so wait a minute, are we talking about robots? <laughs> you know, like, what is this? 
are they deciding what we're going to do? Um, you know, it's like <laughs> Star Wars or something. It's like, what is this? So that said, I consider it a tool. That's all it is. It's a tool. My concern about the tool itself is who is doing this, who is behind the uh, the the details, as you say, the mindset that is sitting there putting translating this into this robot. Do you know how I think as a black woman? Do you know how this Indian woman thinks? Do you know this? Because that is the part where it becomes, ooh, I don't know. I had heard a story about uh, judges using um, a- AI for comparison to sentencing. Ah, that is crazy to me. Like, so... You know, historically, if they are putting in information that is normally put in, then we're doomed. Right. We are doomed. We're going to continue the the the, the disparate impact um, or intentional impact, hell, uh, is going to continue to widen, right? The dissonance in sentencing is going to continue to widen. You know, to, to that end, right, I think about AI, and we had, um, we actually recently had um, Danny Guillory, who's the head of people at, at Glassdoor, we were talking about artificial intelligence and so you, you and I are, you and I are probably more on the the cautious side. And Danny, I got love for him. He's more on like the optimistic side. I, I think the AI has, to your point, I think it has value, and it should be used. I think it just needs to be used like, at carefully, and it needs to be treated like, like a college intern. So, just like you wouldn't have a college intern manage some part of your business or make any real decisions you right it's hey i'm gonna use this and i'm gonna heavily supervise everything that comes out of this thing because it might be smart but it's you an intern you ain't you, you ain't worked nowhere before you no not trying to be ageist you just got here right so this whole this whole idea though of like i think some of it sandra is like to like my concern is that People see this, some people are seeing AI as a way to accelerate or cheapen labor and er- eliminate positions. So we say, we're just going to go use this thing instead of this person. And it's like, hey, this person comes not just, I, yes, I they might be expensive when you talk about their salary and their benefits, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. But guess what? You're mitigating a lot of risk because they're going to also come with experience and, con- and cultural context and historical context that this AI just don't have, right? And so I, I, I'm curious to see, you know, and look, they keep on silencing black women who have been raising the alarm about um, about AI and the, the intersection of ethic, using AI in ethical ways. Uh, Dr. Timnit Gabru is like, obviously like the foremost name in that space, but but I'm, I'm, I am, I'm curious and I'm going to be, I'm going to be thought like really paying attention. Liver corporate's going to be paying attention to how these tools are used. Um, because I think left to their own devices, uh, no pun intended, uh, it's going to be, it could be problematic. Oh, no, definitely could be problematic. I mean, cause there, there is implicit bias in it and unwanted discrimination that can take place. We have to be on top of it. So when you say talking about eliminating jobs, actually you might need to add some jobs to make sure that we're on top of it. Uh, because 
what could come out of it are lawsuits you don't want to have to deal with. A hundred percent. Now, now, now to that end about lawsuits and we're in the season. Um, and, and it's about, before I say this, I think there's a lot of folks who are, I'm going to say more so my age, right? So like a lot of millennials, maybe, maybe even some older Gen Zers who are like, DEI is under attack and like, it's all about to be over. And this, we've never seen anything like this before. I think like the reality is if you look at like American history, um, what we're calling DEI today has gone by other names over the past 30, 40 years. There's been cycles of um, progression and then retraction, right? So I'm I'm not so chronologically arrogant to say this is the first and only time this has happened. Um, I'm curious, but I will say for the life, my little lifespan, especially my professional lifespan, I have not seen this level of like just outright attack in this domain, this space. Um, I'm curious, like what, like three points of advice would you give to executives um, who are trying to figure out, okay, I need to retain my talent. I still want to attract talent. I maybe even some of them, maybe Sandra down, maybe some of them want to actually do the right thing. Who knows? But they don't know what to do in light of, political talking heads and all these other things. Like what, what would you tell them in this moment? Um, one of the things I would be real clear on is you still have a bottom line you have to meet. And if you do something that is going to really affect that bottom line, now think about what you've done thus far. If you're going to do something based on this silliness that's going on, you're going to do harm to that bottom line you're going to do harm to your brand. Your brand is at stake right now. And people don't believe that it can be affected. It can be affected, we've seen it. Uh, Think long and hard. You think about the value actually that it brings. In fact, the educators have talked about this uh, given SCOTUS and what they did on affirmative action. They want a diverse uh, group of students in their environment. You learn from that. You understand the world better when you have a diverse group of people in the classroom. That is not going to change. People, uh, you know, the sky is falling, skies, it's not falling. We are repurposing. We're putting putting a different kind of roof on to protect what has been going on in in the increasing learning uh, of who we are as people. There are so many things that can be done. Look at your language that you're using because, you know, they're going to keep coming for this. Look at the language that you're using in terms of programming and the idea of, so I had one recruit by design. Okay. I I didn't say what it was, but let's recruit by design. Uh, As you said, with all of the uh, different uh, aspects of what we have in terms of generation, race, uh, we can do all of that and nobody can stop us from that. So the bottom line, the branding, understanding your audiences, those are very crucial now. We know that the, the U.S. in particular is split. We, we at least assume that they're split. You know, you can't always go by the, the polls anymore. Um, but understanding what people are feeling as a leader, you better know what your people are feeling. Do not go in that uh, room, close the door, and all of you sit around the table and think that you know it all. You do not. 
go outside that room and have a high touch experience with your people. We have let's chat, let's connect. The EC, the executive committee, are the members who go and have conversations, roundtable conversations with no more than 15, 20 people all across the, the globe. Be in touch so you do not you are not surprised. You gotta know. And if you're a leader, you'd want to know what your people are thinking in terms of the the work they're doing and the uh, the organization as a whole. How are we rated? Those things are important. And I will say to you, I think that, that CEOs in particular, they, they may appear to be, you know, ooh, these people know what they're doing. Yeah, they know what they're doing. I would say to the people inside of the organizations, keep their seats warm. Uh, keep their seats warm because there is always, there will always be a competition for talent and talent will go where they feel they're going to grow. You grow in diverse environments. In homogenous environments, you stay the same. Sandra, I'm going to tell you something. You've been dropping bars this entire conversation. Um, truly phenomenal guest. I appreciate the time that you've made uh, to be on Living Corporate. We consider you a friend of the show. Um, and um, and we look forward to having you back soon. Well, I surely enjoyed our conversation because you like my son and my godson, both uh, in their 30s. And I say, I say, you all keep me young and keep me going. So happy to do it. Love it. We will talk to you soon. And we're back. Yo, I want to thank our guests. I want to I want to say uh, much love to the entire living corporate team. Thank you for you. You. That's right. You listen to this right now. Driving your car or on the subway or, you know, what I'm saying working out or just listening late at night while you, you know, what I'm saying doing some work or something. Thank you for being a part of our living corporate community. I appreciate you. Make sure if you haven't already that you create a login on living-corporate.com where you can actually get all this content pushed to you based on the types of things that you want to engage and listen to. Make sure you actually go to living-corporate.com for jobs and uh, career advice and all types of just dope content that we got on there and that we're publishing every single day. All right. Till next time, this has been Zach. I'll catch you soon. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.